You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. I continue to be flabbergasted at the response to this podcast tackling the conversation of climate change. In the past, we've discussed the perception out there that science is simply an opinion. Back in episode 66, we heard from the mountain bikers of Santa Cruz about their mountain biking impact review. And I discussed this with Emma and Matt. And way back in episode 18, we heard from Devin O'Neill, who discussed his Lines in the Dirt series. One of the stories he wrote about included the response from a land manager to a trail association saying something to the effect of, well, we have our own scientists. I myself have dealt with land managers that prevent me from maintaining a trail until a new third-party environmental assessment was done. Now, the environmental assessment came back and it recommended maintenance of the trail instead of decommissioning, but that was much to the chagrin of the land manager. This was not the result they wanted. Now, this is where I get to quote the words written by the section manager of Natural Parkland himself because I have the results of an FOI or Freedom of Information request because we live in a capital D democracy. After not getting the results they wanted, they sent a staff member out to, quote, complete a trail assessment and suitability study, parentheses, enviro assessment to support our decision, end quote. As a mountain bike trail advocate, I've come to expect the cherry-picking of scientific findings by land managers and anti-mountain bike groups alike. What surprises me is the responses I've received from advocates who don't believe the science that climate change is caused by humans, despite 97% of scientists agreeing. Across the world, more than 289 million people are represented by local governments that have declared a climate emergency. Those include cities like Miami, Austin, Texas, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Boulder, Fort Collins, Ann Arbor and Kalamazoo, Michigan, Burlington, Vermont, Plymouth, New Hampshire, Amherst, Massachusetts, New Brighton and New Haven, New Hampshire, Montgomery County, Maryland, and Hoboken, New Jersey. Now in my conversation today, we discuss master plans and getting involved early. We've discussed it before. If you can get your mountain bike project included in a land manager's master plan, then it makes your political fight down the road much easier. Get involved early. And if you live in one of those communities that I just mentioned, and you can prove that your latest mountain bike project will help address the climate emergency, then you have a major political win to keep that conversation going with your land manager. For those that don't think this stuff is related to mountain biking, you simply don't understand how the world works. Politics is the name of the game, whether you like it or not. And I'm willing to guess that those advocates listening who've been at this for at least as long as I have, you figured that one out a long time ago. So how does a mountain bike project address climate change? Well, one of the biggest problems facing our urban environments is traffic. And you can relate this to CO2 emissions, but if you don't believe the science, then you can look at noise pollution or the negative effects on mental health and public safety or the overall fitness of your community. The famous Bill Nye the Science Guy, who I email on a yearly basis to be on this show, I'm still waiting for a response, but Bill believes that the vehicle of the future will be the bicycle. And the bicycle is a major part of what's included in active transportation or active mobility. 
The government of Canada defines active transportation as, quote, using your own power to get from one place to another, end quote. Now, this can include walking and skateboarding, but like e-bikes and mountain biking, it's starting to include micro-mobility devices like e-scooters and e-skateboards. We can also include things like public transit, as the vast majority of journeys on public transit start and end with walking. Now, if the bicycle is going to be the vehicle of the future, we need to have people comfortable on bikes. And my guests today are not only creating safe spaces for kids to learn how to mountain bike, but they're also creating a culture for the future that not only embraces active transportation, they see it as the best option. So who better than mountain bikers to shepherd a future generation that will have the aptitude, proficiency, and passion to use the bicycle to roam this future world? Now, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 71 of Frontlines. I'd like to welcome two guests from the Minneapolis Bike Parks. The first is founder, Devin Olson. Hi, Devin. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. And second, we have the program director of the Minneapolis Bike Parks, Kim Holm. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brent. Thanks. So uh, what I want to know is is how this program got started. But before we even get to that, what was the, the motivation to actually create the Minneapolis Bike Parks? The big motivation to kind of get started was me having two young girls at the time. They were four and six. And I've had a long love for biking in general, uh, specifically mountain biking. And it kind of all started with a few conversations that I was having with my brother, who's who's actually kind of doing some of the same stuff uh, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. But it was also, it really boiled down to the opportunities and the experiences that me and my daughters were having at the local mountain bike trails and trailheads. The experiences overall were very, very good. And actually, I, I don't think I've had any really negative experiences, but a lot of the trailheads in our area, they're stacked loop. So it means you have to ride the, the green to get to the blue, to get to the black. And so oftentimes that means that although all the riders are super polite and very nice, it, it meant that there was a lot of pulling over for faster riders behind us. And anytime the, the girls got an opportunity to kind of pick up speed, gain momentum, gain that confidence that they needed to kind of, kind of get that flow, we'd have to pull over just because, you know, we felt obligated to, and, and there was riders coming up behind us. Compile that with, there's a trail uh, very near Minneapolis called Lebanon Hills. Uh, it's in Egan, Minnesota. And they have a pretty cool skills park that consists of just a little, it's, I don't know, it's total distance is maybe 300 yards. Uh, it's kind of a big loop. It's got some hills, some little hills and some other obstacles. And that was the first place that my daughters would want to go to. As soon as we pulled into the parking lot, they couldn't wait to get their helmet on, get on their bike and be off to the, to the skills park. So it was really cool, but it was, it was one of those things where it's like, why do I have to drive 20 minutes to do this thing that we could probably do in any one of the neighborhood parks that we have in our area? And so as I kind of started thinking about that more, it, it became evident that there really wasn't a reason why we couldn't have it in Minneapolis proper. And so that kind of started us down the path of engaging in conversations at local PTA meetings or um, just other people we saw out riding or kids at the park. And so that was kind of really the, the driving force that kind of got me going on this was creating those opportunities for young riders to experience off-road riding and basically just have a safe space to ride off the road. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting your point about stacked loops. I think for for me, I live in in a neighborhood that um, that has this uh, adopted trail network, and so the the mountain bike trails were here uh, either previously as hiking trails or they were built by by mountain bikers. It is a a black focused network of trails, and so there's a real lack of of beginner trails here, and the beginner trails aren't necessarily used to access the blues and 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 the black trails and so i kind of have this this thought that you know or this belief that the stacked loop is like this perfect solution but i i didn't actually think about this as as being now you're putting advanced riders through the green sections of trails and this can be intimidating for riders and you know, I'm I'm reminded of when I first started to to learn how to ride the the trail A line in the in the Whistler Bike Park. It's it was I had never experienced being passed by so many riders in my life, and and you just feel like you're in the way, and you just don't you you kind of just well that was pointless. Like why did I go and do that? Right? I just kind of ruined all of these other people's experience, and it's not a good feeling to have. And so you know, having these isolated spaces. Uh, it, Absolutely. It's such a great way to, to, to learn the sport. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a photo right now of the skills park from, from Lebanon Hills and it's, and maybe it's different now and maybe that I just have one photo of it, but it, it has to be one of the most basic skills parks out there. It, it looks like a couple of skinnies or a couple bridges, you know, there's a green, a blue and a black line, but it's, it doesn't take much to kind of have just something that kids want to play around on. And yeah, you're bang on with, with kind of wanting to, to get them closer to home. So what was kind of the next step for you? You know, did it, did it go from like, I want this closer to home to being like, I'm going to create an organization to make this happen. Or was there a couple steps in between there? Yeah, there, there was a few steps in between there. One of the first steps that I kind of took was I knew there was another guy that uh, his daughters went to the same preschool as my daughters did and in the same elementary school. And we didn't know each other really well, but we knew each other well enough. And I knew him because he would, he just rides his bike everywhere with his family. And it's very similar to what our family looks like. And so within the neighborhood, we just knew it's like, Oh, okay, there's Mike. He's on his bike. And after a PTA meeting, I I just kind of floated the idea past him. And we ended up talking for probably an hour or an hour and a half after the meeting. And he was really on board and he was like, Oh yeah, that would be totally awesome. Like, yeah, how do we do this? What, what do we need to do? And at that point I had had one or two other conversations with other people in the area who had also been showed a lot of support for the for the idea and the thought, and I took the logical next step and posted a question or a, a, a statement on a local Facebook group, and just asked if there was a South Minneapolis bike park, would that be of any interest to anyone in this group? And immediately it just took off. But one of the very first things that started coming up in the conversation is like, why are you just going to do this in South Minneapolis? Why aren't you going to do this in North Minneapolis or Northeast or in Southwest? My initial response was, well, I live in South and I guess I didn't realize that there was a big enough demand for this. And I guess there's no reason to not have (laughs) more than one of these. We're all in the same position where we're just talking about it on a social network. No one has done anything for this at this point. So let's kind of figure out what that looks like. And so as Mike and I kind of continued our conversation, um, we knew of this park in the far south uh, side of the cities uh, of, of Minneapolis. It's, uh, it just it doesn't really have much there other than it's a pretty big park. I don't know, maybe 20 acres, and it's probably half wooded and half not. Our initial thought was, well, we'll just go in there and we'll cut some brush and we'll rake some leaves and you know, we'll build a skinny and we'll go to Home Depot and, and kind of do some stuff. But then 
better judgment took over and I said, well, I should probably check with our park commissioners for our area and see if that would be a good idea. (laughs) And of course, the response that I got from her was, that's not a great idea, but. (laughs) (laughs) So she just kind of pointed us in the direction of a few other things that were happening. And to this day, I still kind of look back at it and I'm like, this is just amazing how things were lined up the way they were. And, and like, just, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't know if it's luck or just preparing for the opportunity when the opportunity presents itself. And so at the same time that we started talking about this, Minneapolis was undergoing a major master plan process. So what that meant was the park system that has been the best park system in the nation for the past five of six years was undergoing master planning that was looking at all 168 neighborhood parks, a little over 170 park properties were being looked at for master planning. And when I heard that, my eyes just lit up. I, I really didn't even know what that meant, but it, I knew that it, like from the conversations that I had started to have and from the articles I had been reading online and, and actually probably even Brent from a few of the podcasts that I had listened to from Frontlines, I understood that if things were in the master plan, the likelihood of them being implemented wasn't 100%, but it was far better than if they were not in the master plan. And so at that time, I just really started try to understand how the park board operated and what these meetings looked like and where the meetings were and what part of the city they were in and who the allies kind of in those parts of the city were. And we've just really started trying to draw and, and we're still kind of in this phase of awareness where we just started trying to go to as many park board meetings as we possibly could to start creating awareness for both the general public and the park board in and of itself. What we want is a place for youth to ride their bike where they don't have to worry about traffic. They don't have to worry about dogs on leashes. You know, we don't want them competing with joggers and runners and parents with strollers and whatever else it may be. We just want, we want a space dedicated for kids to ride their bikes. Yeah. Awesome. I, I want to come back to that education piece, but but before we do that, you're bang on with the master plan. It's not 100%, but it's one of those things that I've I found in, in my experience that if you can point to something being in that master plan, that it just gives you a huge leg up to continue advocating for whatever it is that, that you're advocating. I'm seeing it right now in my municipality with uh, safe bike infrastructure. You know, there was a, a cycling master plan that was created. And, and right now we're able to go to council and say, like, you said that you wanted to do this. Now let's make a timeline of when you're actually going to do this. And we're not saying that we want you to do this. They've already said that they want to do this. And so it, it it speaks to that early engagement and all my episodes that I've, I've talked about with about wilderness and bikes and wilderness. One of the biggest pieces of feedback that, that always come around is that we didn't get engaged early enough and getting into those meetings and getting into those uh, community outreach and, and those, you know, every community kind of has a different way of describing them, whether it's consultation or, or a brainstorming session or, or community information night, you know, the more of those that we can get to and the more that we can just be marking down like mountain biking or skills parks or something that we want. You know, every time that I go to one of those meetings, I'll always make sure to, to grab a sticky note and write down, you know, pump track <laughs> on it. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yep. Yeah. And that goes a long way. Right. And, and it doesn't necessarily need to be 
a formal organization that is putting that that information up on the board, you know, an average citizen can do that as well, which is always great. Yeah. Now, Kim, you mentioned to me earlier that you're you're relatively new to the Minneapolis area. So, you, how did you get involved with the with the Minneapolis bike parks? I moved to Minneapolis from Colorado in January to work for QBP, Quality Bicycle Products. They do a, a lot of outreach and advocacy, and have some really great community involvement programs. And so the director of our community advocacy division will regularly send out emails for volunteer opportunities for employees to engage with the bike community. And one such email was looking for volunteer coaches for a program called Girls Bike Adventures. And that was the program that Devin started to kind of pair with the Minneapolis Bike Parks Initiative. And back in Colorado, I'd, I'd actually worked for a, a downhill bike park for a number of years. So when this opportunity came up, I was like, sure, I'd love to coach biking. That's pretty comfortable for me. You know, I'd seen a presentation on Minneapolis bike parks and the idea of it, these bike playgrounds, like everybody knows what a bike is. Everyone knows what a playground is. Having these infrastructure pieces in a public space, it was just like a light bulb. Why, why have I not seen this before? Like, this is an amazing idea. Of course, I want to be involved. I met with Devin and, you know, as is obvious, his enthusiasm for the program and this initiative is just infectious. And we started to put together what it would look like to to have a program that utilizes this infrastructure. So Kim, you mentioned QBP, which is Quality Bicycle Products, uh, and, and you actually got involved with Minneapolis Bike Parks and, and the, the, the girls' uh, riding program through this. So this kind of ties in quite well with, uh, with a past episode. And, and episode 68, I spoke with Tom Stussy of, uh, of the Vermont Mountain Bike Association and, and Voice, and, and we spoke a lot about sponsors and these relationships. And it, it sounds like, you know, you're a prime example of, of what it is that we want to try to get out of sponsors. It's not just funding. It's, it's not just tools or, or, you know, writing a check, but creating relationships with staff as well. And so not only does this opportunity with, with QBP provide Minneapolis bike parks with, with sponsorship and revenue and that kind of thing, but also provides them with, with a great contact and somebody that, that is invaluable and, and having volunteers is, is making sure that you have people that are there and willing to help out is one of the hardest things that any advocacy trails, bikes, anything else related. Um, it's one of the hardest things that, that we as advocates will, will ever do. And, and so it's great to kind of see that this relationship and that this sponsorship happened. How did quality bicycle products get involved with Minneapolis bike parks? Listen to that episode, Mr. Susie, And I think that's such an excellent point. You know, it's not just the one check that you want from that one big corporation, but say when QBP is holding, you know, we do these educational meetings for employees to learn how different departments work. And as a, as a new hire, I went into a meeting with Seth Nesselhoof, who is our community outreach coordinator, and he's in charge of the advocacy and community department in QBP. Which, first of all, is amazing that that is a department. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I go sit in a meeting room with a bunch of other new hires, and Seth talks about you know recent projects that Q has undertaken to engage the bike community. 
not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because it helps our business. You know, our mission is to literally get more butts on bikes and advance bike kind. And we do that through community engagement as well as, you know, providing products and whatnot. But without riders, we don't have a business. And one of those projects that he spoke about in that meeting was Minneapolis bike parks. And there's this awesome slideshow of, you know, kids going through these colored tunnels and ramps and, you know, kids will play with a cardboard box and a piece of string, you know, so you get them like a wooden bridge shaped like a snake. And that is magic. (laughs) (laughs) And from there, he was basically like, so who wants to get involved? And, And that's the thing that QBP does a really good job of is engaging that human capital. Like not only are they really supportive financially of community programs that also advance our mission or kind of cohere with our vision, but they do a really good job of engaging their own employees first as part of that bike community. So Seth sent out an email kind of promoting and advertising this girls bike program. Devin was looking for female coaches to help out with the summer program. And so what, about half the coaches ended up being QVP employees, which is a huge contribution, you know, that human investment of presence and time. It's interesting. I've heard the education component from, from another group. There's a, a group in Los Angeles that they're called the, I believe it's the LA Bike Park Collective. And they actually made a, a great video describing what skills parks are and, and all the different variations that are out there. And, and I, I've used this video a number of times to, to kind of send off to people that are, that are questioning what, what's a pump track and what's a dirt jump and what's a, uh, a skills park and uh, that kind of thing. And, and that education piece is huge. I mean, you, you spoke to it, like people don't even know what you're describing to them. And one of the, the new terms that I've heard more recently is bike playground. Where did this term kind of come from or why did this term kind of come up and, and what does it mean? What is a bike playground? Yeah, so that's a good question. Where I kind of first started hearing about the bike playground was as we started looking at what a bike park looks like or what it consists of, very early on, I was kind of turned on to the uh, the company uh, Progressive Bike Ramps. They've done a lot of work down kind of in the Bentonville area and, and I guess across the nation for for that matter. But they've got these, you know, they're they're kind of like skills parks, but they're they're geared definitely towards the younger range of riders. So think Striders to maybe eight, nine, ten, twelve year olds that that are newish to to biking and from what I've gathered and from can tell um, is that they're really focused on kind of that playgroundy type structure or setup where, you know, there's a lot of bright colors. There's, there's nothing that's too, too dangerous. If you fall off, you might get a scratch knee, but you know, um, and so it's an opportunity to talk about bike infrastructure without talking about big drops and really aggressive rock gardens or those things that really intimidate a lot of riders who aren't those very skilled skilled riders that that I think traditionally think of a bike park. I think, you know, prior to like probably 2 or 3 years ago when you talked about a bike park, the first thing that would come to my mind was, you know, Whistler 
or there's you know there's a few places in 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 town or in the area here that have dirt jumps where there's you know they're just big massive dirt jumps with some drops and they've got you know tabletops and doubles that are you know five or six or ten or fifteen feet apart and it's just really intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> I think the term bicycle playground helps really eliminate that kind of that fear factor. It shifts the conversation and the mentality from 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 that really aggressive type of riding to like let's just go to the park and ride our bikes. Like let's let's not have to ride our bikes to the park and put the bikes down and then go do something else. Let's ride to the park and then let's ride for another 15 or 20 or 45 minutes. We've kind of identified a need within the Minneapolis area. How do we go from kind of figuring out that we can't just take shovels out in the woods and go to Home Depot and buy stuff to to understanding, you know, engagement with with land managers is important. How do we go from there to actually making uh, things happen? How do we how do we go to to actually creating bike parks? What was the next step for the for Minneapolis bike parks? It, it, it really didn't take very many meetings uh, of those master planning meetings that that took place to understand that we need to not only show up to these meetings, but we also need to bring print offs of what bike parks look like. And so mm. so we can accompany those print offs with that post-it note that says pump track. Yeah. As soon as we started doing that, you could just see wheels turning both with the park board and with the other community residents who were attending these meetings. You'd be at, we'd be at meetings with, you know, young kids and they'd be talking about bikes or they'd be talking about something else. And all of a sudden, you know, I'd lay down this eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that had a pump track on it or some other really cool bike features that had kids that kind of looked like them on it. And all of a sudden they shift from talking about basketball and football and other traditional sports, which by the way, there, I don't have anything against those traditional sports. I've played and participated in those my entire life and I still do. But there's a huge opportunity for the kids who don't always want to participate in those things and the kids who just never want to participate in those things to do something else active. And I think that's another big element that we want to kind of focus on. And so really being able to show both kids and parents and the park board what these things look like and provide links to them for you know a YouTube video that shows you know what a bicycle playground is or shows kids participating in a strider race or whatever it may be providing those visuals that help guide or direct the conversation in the the direction that we want it to go and it's you know it's it's all about the education it's all about the awareness um what we did is we knew that pictures and words and meetings and conversations weren't going to that's not what was going to get these things implemented we needed to kind of like take an agile approach and really understand how can we how can we get these infra- how can we get this infrastructure in place without necessarily needing all the permission that we probably would need and so what we did is in Minneapolis there's uh, an event in the summer um, it's called open streets and they they do like maybe six or eight of these events throughout the summer and they block off huge sections of city streets and they just open it up to everything non motorized vehicle related so there's people biking and skateboarding and roller skating and, and, and walking and, and all those things. We created basically a small pop-up bike park and it included a skinny that was probably six feet long and four inches high and a teeter-totter that was pretty small, a series of four cones and two other kind of bigger ride-over features. And because we had an activity, there was no cost for us to participate in open streets. 
And so we just told the open streets organization that we need a section of street that's 200 feet long and 25 feet wide or whatever it was. And we set up shop and the very first time, like from the get go, it was a hit. I mean, there were kids that were doing hot laps on that thing all afternoon (laughs) and there were families that would leave and come back and leave and come back. And when you would see kids crying and kicking and screaming because their mom and dad were telling them that they needed to go, you know, get lunch or go do something different. They couldn't just ride on this, like this, like if, if you, if you would have looked at it, you would have been like that. How on earth are, why would you spend an entire day riding that thing? Yeah. But these kids loved it. They absolutely loved it. (laughs) And the open street events that we did were extremely successful and people were asking like, when's the next one? How can we, how can we get involved? How can we help? And so going into the fall, as this master planning with the park board was still progressing, we kind of partnered with the park board and just said, hey, can like, there's a bunch of vacant tennis courts. So basically, uh, there's a lot of tennis courts in certain parts of the city that just like, they're just dilapidated. They they don't get used for tennis. And so we asked the park board if we could set up a pop-up park at this, at these banks of tennis courts. And we did that and the response was the exact same as open streets. The very first one we did it, people were coming from the neighborhood. People were driving there, people were riding their bikes there, people were walking there. There were elderly people sitting at benches just watching the kids play. It was it was just it was it was magical really to see the amount of engagement and the excitement that the kids had when they were coming to these events. And it was th- that little step that we needed to kind of really validate and prove out that. This was something that was in demand. We coordinated this through the park board. So the park board was aware of what was going on. And they also, the other thing that was really cool is they were in attendance. And so they saw what the reaction of these kids and parents were. And it was those types of things that really helped move the needle and helped us kind of expedite what we were doing. Fast forward, and we were just like, we need to get something permanent. We worked with progressive bike ramps. We figured out how we could generate or pay for as much of that cost as absolutely possible. So really at the end of the day, when we went to the park board and we said, we would like to do this in one of these three locations, this one being the priority number one, this one being a second priority, and this one, if we can't do it at the other two, I guess we'll do it at this one. We came to them with a, with, with a chunk of, of dollars and we kind of told them like, this is what we want to do. And this is where we'd like to do it. Is there any reason we can't do it by X date? And um, there was a lot of work that went into it from the park board. They have been an absolute amazing, um, I'll call it partner. Kim or I don't have any affiliation. We don't work for the park board or with the park board in any other manner, other than we are just focused on helping bring opportunities for the 80,000 kids that live in Minneapolis. This permanent bike park is, is, uh, it's, uh, Lake, uh, Nokomis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Hopefully I am. Yep. It's, it's, it's Lake Nokomis regional park. And I should, I should say that it's not, it's, it's a, it's a temporary permanent location. <laughs> Fair enough. It's, uh, it's in so one of those tennis courts. Um, it's, that you it's mentioned earlier. Yep. Yep. It's, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the, 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 the priority one tennis court that we wanted it in. The reason we picked this tennis court was that it was directly across the street from the rec center. It was directly uh, across the street from a brand new playground. 
it ran adjacent to the one of the most popular bike trails in Minneapolis. And uh, it's also uh, very close to a, a pretty um, heavily traveled parkway, Minnehaha Parkway within Minneapolis. And all of those elements really helped us build awareness and recognition for the park being there. Um, just because the that park and that area was already had high traffic and high visibility, it meant that if we built something there, people would see it. And if they saw it, they would they would come. And that's exactly what has happened. The space that we're currently in is slated for tennis courts in the master plan for that park, but funding hasn't been approved. They're several years out from really anything happening there. When something does happen there, the the bike park features will will be removed and they'll hopefully find another home within the city. Um, but by that point, um, hopefully there's there are other permanent bike parks um, in the city. Yeah, well, and I think you know if if uh, if if people are using it, um, they're going to notice it when it's gone, and uh, and you're going to have a lot of vocal people who who will want something that uh, that is is similar or or potentially something that is uh, that is bigger. The photo right now that that you have on uh, as your as your cover page on on Facebook uh, on the Facebook page, you know, it it shows this uh, this tennis court, and the the condition of the tennis court looks atrocious. <laughs> you know, the turf's kind of ripped up. It it does not look like a, a you know a usable tennis surface at all. But the great thing is with bikes, it you know these little blemishes in the surface, it's not a big deal for for bikes to roll over them, which is amazing. And then these ramps, progressive bike ramps is is they do some some pretty cool stuff. And for those that aren't aware of them, I, I would describe them as as uh, it's metal fabricated uh, structural components, and then with wood topped, um, like wood bridges but uh but the actual structures are are uh are are fabricated metal which is going to stand up to any kind of moisture rain they can be moved around they're durable modular in the in the sense that you can take them apart put them back together it's this is uh i'm not just a, a couple two by fours slapped together which is yep. great they look they look really great too some of their some of the stuff that i see that they put out is just beautiful looking Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And, and you're a hundred percent right about the, the fact that it's modular and, and, you know, you can kind of shift and move things around if you need it, but it's not a one person job. It's, you know, it's, it, you know, they're, they're not going anywhere as I think the other thing that, that, that was important for us is that they're put on this tennis court and they're, they're there until, you know, the park board or until progressive or until, you know, we decide that they need to get moved but then they'll just at that point they would be disassembled and 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 moved. You are absolutely right about the aesthetics of these things. They are really beautiful and I think that it actually lends a little bit of legitimacy to what we're doing, you know. If you see like a 2 by 4 laying over a culvert, it looks a little bit sketchy <laughs> if we're talking about is bike yeah. But I mean, you don't even have to know what it's for to walk past these things and be like, "Wow, that's cool." What's kind of the next phase right now for, for Minneapolis bike parks? You've got this one, you know, and for lack of a better term, temporary permanent bike park in Nokomis. Are you looking at other, uh, other spaces, other opportunities? I know you kind of had a, a list of areas that you wanted this park. You know, are you still looking to kind of expand into a second, into that second location? Or are there other locations, other areas, other regions around Minneapolis that you're looking at? What's kind of the, the next steps? So the master plan is currently slated to include roughly 15 of these parks in areas all around Minneapolis in our public spaces. It's incredible. And our vision is to ultimately 
pair some educational programming with these infrastructure pieces. Most immediately, we'll be repeating the Girls Bike Adventures, which is a program for six to 10-year-old girls. That's what happened at the uh, Nokomis Bike Park this summer. We'll be repeating that next summer. And also, um, we're looking to have a, a similar girls program in North Minneapolis, as well as a co-ed program in Nokomis as well for six to 10-year-old boys and girls. With the kind of the development of these of these bike parks in in the master plan, is this something that um, and and perhaps it's too early to kind of even even think about this stuff? But is are the municipalities going to be potentially taking on the active role in in the building and construction? Are they going to be hiring out uh, private companies to to take on this construction, or is this something that uh, Minneapolis Bike Parks uh, is going to take on as actually? creating these parks or planning these parks that type of thing or or is it simply you know you're you've kind of done your your advocacy piece there's buy-in now from the municipality and now it's kind of simply just making sure that that you're offering and continuing to offer programs on uh, on existing parks and any future parks that that get developed there's several options that we have i don't see minneapolis bike parks doing any of the building of of any of this stuff or really taking anything over the way I think we've kind of looked at this is is our responsibility is to create awareness, advocate for these amazing spaces, and do what we can to help program and help facilitate the implementation of these bike parks in in the master plans. There are a couple external contracting companies that the city has consulted with regarding the, the construction and design of these parks. But in terms of what is going where, in what order, and whether there's any cohesion or progression or you know connection between the parks is still to be seen and, and to be decided. Yep, and a lot of these parks will be the the parks will be implemented kind of on the on the park board schedule, and in a lot of cases the park board will be funding builds of the parks not necessarily not necessarily bike parks but just the the parks in the master plan in general but i think it's up it's lends us the opportunity to help understand what the priorities look like and where and how we could help secure private funding through grants or through other forms of dollar allocations and so i think it's just really understanding what does the park board's priority look like and what do the other outside kind of influence opportunities look like? Kind of going back to the initial conversation about once things are in the master plan, we can start to kind of like point to those things and say, we would like to build or what would it take to proceed in this area? And really kind of start to understand who might be the other funders that would help fund these types of things. Obviously, the park board has the final say and um, you know we need to make sure that we're aligned with what they're doing. But if we can show that these things are included in the master plan and we can work with the park board and get alignment with the park board, I think it'll really be interesting to kind of see um, how things progress and, and how, how these builds start to happen. Like Kim was saying, I think one of the big things that we're going to continue to try to stay focused on and stay involved in is, is the programming aspect of the bike parks. We saw it last summer um, with the program that we offered. There was a there was a ton of interest. There was people on the wait list, but yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna continue to look at opportunities to enhance or improve and replicate the programming 
and then really just kind of work with the park board to understand how we can help. I think the other really important thing about this is community engagement is so critical to the development and the creation of these parks. The park board does a really good job of after the master planning has happened, once the actual process for the creation of the parks. And when I say parks in this scenario, I'm referring to like all the parks, not just the bike parks, but they reach back out to the community where this neighborhood park exists. And they ask that community, what are the things that you want to see in this park? And that's where we need to be involved and engaged and help people understand and realize that, you know, this community meeting needs to be attended by uh, mountain bikers and it needs to be attended by people who are interested in creating safe spaces for their kids to ride bikes. One of the challenges that we see with all of this, this community engagement, is that these parks are primarily built for the youth of our city. And the youth and, and the families of those youth are super busy folks. And so it's really hard to get a family of four or even one parent and a, and a child or even just one parent at these meetings. And so yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things that, that, we need to, that we need to continue to focus on is just make sure that we can do what we can to help get people to these meetings and continue to help build the parks of the future. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great point. I always get a chuckle that most most city council meetings uh, that I've heard happen at around six thirty, and and if you're a parent with young children, you know that the hours between about six and seven are are some of the the busiest times uh, of a of a parent's life. Um, it is it is prime dinner, bath, and bedtime, and <laughs> to uh, to have kind of other things to in that time slot in the in the week is is always challenging, and so getting that voice can be tough, but it's it's definitely very important. Right now, I think our, our our municipalities, our cities, our urban landscapes are changing very rapidly, and so these land managers that are are either you know urban park boards or or the municipality itself, you know every every community is going to be a little bit different in, in who the specific land managers are that they're going to work with, but. When it comes to these urban environments, they're they're changing very rapidly. Even even you know, I've noticed watching television and movies. You know, if you watch a, a TV show that is filmed in in New York City, you know the difference between what the background looks like now versus what a TV show from ten years ago. There's a lot more green paint in a place like New York City. Their cycling infrastructure is 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 starting to really be very important, and. And how our cities operate and how we move around them is changing. Car-free days or these street parties like like where you had your first event are a great example of municipalities just trying to change a little bit and, and see what works and, and what's different. And, and a lot of communities are talking about things like active transportation. So that is uh, walking, cycling, or, or taking public transit, understanding that every public transit trip starts and ends with walking. And so it is far more active than, than taking a car. It's far more active than taking a taxi or, or an Uber. And so, you know, when you have these conversations with the parks board, are, are there any mention of them being like, yeah, this, this really helps us with getting more people on bikes and, and this kind of active transportation component. Is this something that, that they're cognizant of that these bike parks are going to kind of help them develop more bike paths or that it's going to get more engagement from the community? That's one of the things that we're really trying to focus on in the 
educational programming bit. This isn't just mountain bike instruction. It's not just the skills park. I mean, this past summer, we had the parks police come and talk to the kids about interacting with cars and pedestrians and safe ways to get to the park. And, you know, we had a naturalist come. And once we're in the park, let's talk about the different ecosystems and what a pollinator is and all the different things that we can see from our bike. You know, we talked about different mechanical elements of maintaining your bike and that personal accountability of that and the freedom and responsibility that comes along with it. So, you know, Minneapolis has a great infrastructure system for biking. There's bike lanes on most streets. You can bring your bike on the train and most buses. It's really easy to get around. So whether through utilizing these bike parks, we are creating a future of little mountain bikers, little BMX riders, or simply little commuters. You know, I think that's something that people really respect and pay attention to. You know, there's something for that all of these kids can get from this. It's about the sustainable lifestyle that biking affords. And I think that that's something that Minnesota residents and the Minneapolis community in particular is very keenly attuned to. Well, Kim, Devin, thank you so much for for taking the time to to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. It's great to kind of hear about uh, about what's going on with Minneapolis bike parks. It it sounds like an absolute massive success story, and uh, and and from the the term is overused, but grassroots organizations. You know, this is a true example of how of what a, a great grassroots organization and initiative can can really do. So great work to to both of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brent. Thanks for having us. Big thanks to both of my guests, Kim and Devin from Minneapolis Bike Parks. Next episode, we'll be taking a related tangent and hearing from a panel of professional trail builders. Now, the idea for that show came from a longtime listener and supporter of the podcast and a personal friend, Rick Bowles. So thank you, Rick, for inspiring this upcoming conversation. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and most recently, Spotify. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. The audience has shrunk, but a number of you have reached out to me on Facebook. And those that I know do the most in their respective communities. You're not only still here, but I know you are tirelessly working in advocacy. So thank you, Joshua, Guillaume, Michael, Matt, Sanish, Michael, Ben, Grant, Andrew, Susie, Mike, Ken, Sean, Richard, and Ian. And I especially want to thank Andrew and Susie for your donations. It goes a long way to keep this thing going. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontlines MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. So do your Christmas shopping and support the podcast at the same time. In the show notes, you'll also find a link to the video that I mentioned from the LA Bike Park Collective and a link to progressive bike ramps. I've also included links to a video with Bill Nye and a link to the climatemobilization.org website. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride, artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative, and a big thanks to Ben Wellneck and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and keep on fighting.